0: Is anyone
1: there? Hi. You're listening to KUSF.org. You're listening to KUSF live from the University of San Francisco. Visit us on the web at kusf.org. Hi everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to the podcast for Switchback the literary magazine for the MFA program in writing at the University of San Francisco. We are recorded live every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. at the KUSF studios. I'm Rafael Herrero. Rafael Herrero, if you can roll your R's. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, everybody. We are here to talk about everything writerly. And we have in our studios today Nina Schuyler. We're going to be talking about her book, the Translator. Welcome, Nina.
0: Well, hello. Thank you for inviting me, Raphael.
1: Thank you so much for coming today. Nina Schuyler is the author of the award winning novel, The Translator. The Translator won the 2014 Next Generation Indie Book Award and was shortlisted for the William Saroyan International Writing Prize. It received a starred review from the Booklist and Shelf Awareness and was named a 100-recommended book by the San Francisco Chronicle. The translator has been translated into four languages. Her first novel, The Painting, was nominated for the Northern California Book Award and was named a year's finest best book by the San Francisco Chronicle and a fearless debut by MSNBC. It's been translated into Chinese, Portuguese, and Serbian. Her stories have been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and her poems and short stories have appeared in Zizava, Santa Clara Review, Fugue, The Meadowland Review, The Battered Suitcase, and other literary journals. She writes a column for FictionAdvocate.com on style and stunning sentences, and reviews books for The Rumpus and The Children's Book Review. She attended Stanford University for her undergraduate degree, earned a law degree at Hastings College of the Law, and an MFA in fiction with an emphasis on poetry at San Francisco State University. She teaches creative writing here at the University of San Francisco and writing classes at Book Passage. She lives in Northern California with her husband and two sons. So thank you so much, Nina, Nina Schuyler, for being in our studios with us today.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Raphael.
1: We're going to be talking about Nina Schuyler's book, The Translator. Nina, could you tell our listeners what The Translator is about?
0: Sure. Um, I have a translator, Hannah Schubert, who translates, uh, th- at this point in her career, Japanese literature into English. Her whole life she's been a translator. Early in the book, she the book opens with her translating a Japanese novel, And she finishes and takes a break, and she ends up falling down a flight of stairs and loses her ability to speak English, which is actually a condition that can happen if you hit on your brain at a particular area. She ends up speaking only Japanese, a language she learns later in life, and she leaves for Japan because she's become so isolated there, to her shock, uh, the Japanese novelist, whose work she just translated, confronts her publicly and accuses her of sabotaging his work. She sets out to find the inspiration for the author's novel, to prove herself right, to show that she indeed translated the correctly. She ends up with an unemployed, no actor, and his name is Moto, and from there, she grows and learns and starts to reevaluate her estranged relationship with her daughter.
1: Lovely, lovely. So let's start today's show, Nina, if you will, with a passage from your book. Could we do that? Sure. We're going to have Nina Skyler read to us a, an excerpt from chapter fifteen.
0: Just a little context. You're going to hear uh, her daughter's name, Brigitte. So she is in Japan right now and not sure what she's going to do with her life. A breeze swirls the willow leaves like green paper prayers at a Shinto shrine. A girl runs by the window chasing loose notebook pages. Pages float into the canal and the girl stands on the bank and cries. A woman, presumably the girl's mother, runs over and tries to fish the papers out with a stick. A familiar scene, thinks Hana. Brigitte's kite stuck in the big oak tree, Brigitte weeping. Hannah first tried to release it with a stick, then kicked off her flats, put on her tennis shoes, and scaled the tree, carefully making her way to the third brittle branch. While Tomas stood below her, certain she was going to fall, calling out, Be careful, Mom! Sitting on a branch, she reached high above her, and after many tries, rooted out the kite. Brigitte sprang from the grass, shouting with delight. Afterwards, both children regaled her by telling the story over and over to Hiro, to their friends, to her. She became something of a hero to them. She thought it would be locked into their memories, a bourgeoise, never to be forgotten. But eventually the story turned into something else, turned against her. Evidence that she was stubborn, unwilling, or unable to give in, to give up. Now she's suddenly overwhelmed with sadness that almost makes her cry. How easily good intentions are seen as bad. A hero becomes a villain. Competence becomes incompetence.
1: Yes, I loved that passage. Thank you for reading that. Now, Nina, you have a wonderful story in this book, a story that deceives in its apparent simplicity. I think that a reader can read this and enjoy just the story for itself, but there is so much depth beyond that story if we really want to pay attention. It could be said that your book has three main storylines the relationship hana has with her translations the relationship Hannah has with the no actor moto and the complicated relationship that Hannah has with her daughter brigitte would you say that there's one main relationship in this story
0: i'm not sure there's one but all of those storylines had to talk to each other and i think that was part of the struggle and the challenge of the book is to create a very unifying and knitted plot lines so that um, when I took the book apart after the first draft, it was looking at each of those plot lines and making sure that they were in communication with each other and not not sh- taking the reader out to a stray or kind of a tide pool area that had nothing to do with the main kind of arc of the book and the main arc of Hannah as she goes through the these losses the loss of her career and the the recognition that perhaps she's lost much more than that
1: yes and what's marvelous about the book is that these three strings are actually necessary for each other i think that each one of these relationships brings the other one to the forefront and they they are actually necessary to discover and develop the others I enjoyed that Hannah and Brigitte, Hannah, the mother, and her daughter Brigitte, have a difficult relationship despite having much in common. They both have an acute sense of hearing. They have a, a love or obsession with languages. They have a love for birds, etc. And Hannah also has a relationship with her son Thomas. And with Thomas, despite having fewer things in common, one would think, it's, it's a more tender relationship. Why did you make those choices?
0: I think when you're writing, you're always asking yourself, well, who am I inviting into the story and why? So as I went through the story, I wanted, well, Hannah is very well defended. There's a lot of things that she's unwilling to look at. And so I needed characters that would push up against her and create sparks on the page. And there's a technique, I think Charles Baxter is the one that talked about it, called counterpointed characterization, where you can create a lot of sparks, a lot of friction on the page. If you create melodies, if you think of characters as melodies, so what songs can you create that are diametrically opposed and then push them together? I think we get so many family stories because it answers the very obvious question, why are these people together at all? normally, they wouldn't be together. But in a family, they have to be together. So I was really consciously aware at some point, probably on revision three, that the songs that these characters had to be singing had to be different notes.
1: Lovely. I love that. Now, I mentioned that your book deceives because there's an apparent simplicity, but beyond the surface, there is so much depth. I felt that in this book, I'm actually taken into many different dimensions. Without it being a a book of, of science fiction, there's different dimensions of time, dimensions of space, the dimensions of words, books, and life in general. So, many different dimensions, and yet the reader never feels confused. So, let me go into these different dimensions. If you want, we can start, for example, with the dimension of time. I was astonished by all the time shifts that you use as a writer in this book, and however it flows incredibly well. Hana is in the present moment with Moto, the no actor, and yet she is thinking about her daughter Brigitte. Hana, for example, is on the phone in another scene with someone, but she is thinking about her own life as a child. Could you tell us a little bit about how you use time in this novel? What advice would you give to writers who want to go back frequently between the past and the present, like you do? Sometimes even inside one paragraph, you use a sentence in the present tense and then another one in the past. Tell us about your use of time.
0: Well, first of all, I should recommend, if you're playing with time, um, a great writer to read is Alice Munro. She is an amazing uh, writer in terms of her movement and time and her compression that, uh, you know, years can go by in a paragraph. Uh, I, it was a real, this was another real struggle. I, I had to take this apart because there were so many dips back into time into her, Hannah's relationship with their daughter. She hasn't spoken to her daughter in six years. And I needed Moto to trigger, to brush up against Hana, to make her start thinking, rethinking that relationship with her daughter and what actually went wrong. It created a character like Moto. In Asian literature, you often have a character who's willing to ask the question, what's the purpose of your life? Sort of like an investigator. And he became that one that poked and probed. And those kind of pokes and probes and challenging challenging Hana sent her back into thinking about her daughter and the way she handled different situations. Because in the end, Moto has a lot in common with Brigitta, So that, that took a lot of time, a lot of revising and listening to the story and who is this man and how is he similar to her daughter to figure that out. At some point, I felt like I dipped so often into the past that early on, I just created a chapter, I think it's chapter three, where I put a lot of the backstory or the history of that relationship between Hannah and her daughter, because I kept interrupting, I felt too often the present action.
1: It's fascinating how you do that. And then there's the dimension of space. Now, we do travel around the globe, and we discover different cultures and different countries, But the space that I'm referring to here is that there are different dimensions coexisting. Hanna is at the theater, but she's thinking of herself at her desk doing translations. And then she is suddenly looking at her daughter Brigitte in that same scene. And you did so well. How do you make sure your reader is never lost?
0: You hope for the best. (laughs) You have really good readers to help you spot those confusions, those blurry areas. And again, you read, I, I can't emphasize enough revision, listening to the draft, and where are you getting confused? Where did you get lost? And how did this movement end up here? How did the present action, usually kind of a sensory detail, will trigger something? It's, it's actually mimicking the mind, your mind, how you move into the past. Something in the present action triggers a memory, um, a sensory detail or a visceral action, something happens. Uh, but I had really good readers that helped me to catch those blurry moments. I also landed a lot on the rather clunky but necessary word now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, we she does this. So, to bring you back, to ground you back into the present action, just using something as simple and precise and economical as the word now.
1: So, and another dimension of your book is, the one that I am utterly fascinated with, is that Hana falls in love with a character in the book she is translating, Jiro, who takes her to seek out and discover another man, a a real man that Jiro is based on, a man in the flesh by the name of Moto. At times, Hana seems almost attached or more attached to fiction than reality. Is there a parallelism of your book, The Translator, with the book of Don Quixote? the character is almost living more with the characters of the fictional world.
0: I think that's a really good reading. Thank you for that. Yes, there is. that. I think for Hannah the imaginative world, the space of the mind is a lot more comforting, and it's a place she can control. She has, uh, the external world has been somewhat rocky for her, and I think all writers can relate to that, that the interior holds a lot of richness. And I think for Don Quixote and Hana as well, there's such richness that can be found in that kind of blue space of the mind that they don't want to exit. So it's zero of the novel that she's translated becomes the ideal mate for her, at least in her mind. And then, like you said, she confronts the inspiration for Jiro, who is Moto, who is a lot more prickly and mercurial of a character, and he's much, much harder to control, which is emblematic of reality.
1: Yes. And we have Hana, the protagonist of your book, who has this accident, and then the accident that she has affects a certain part of her cerebral cortex. She loses the use of her native language. I, well, it's one of her one of her languages, English, but she can only speak Japanese. And then she goes to Japan and wants to meet Moto, the no actor, who has inspired the fictional character Jiro. And Moto is a fascinating character. He really jumps off the page. How did you come up with his character, Nina?
0: He was really fun to write. So I think I'm always looking how to create energy on the page. And when I got to writing him, he just he was so slippery and so able to do anything. I think when you get a character like that that the world feels wide open for this character, and all possibilities are on the table. The energy picks up, and every time I got to him and Hanna's confrontation with him, again, he was a counterpointed character. He's completely opposite to Hannah, who needs control and precision and language and interpretation of what is the meaning of what's going on here, and he doesn't. He is—I am here to experience life in that That is what I'm doing here. And it just is abhorrent to her.
1: Is there a real character that Moto is based on? No. He's totally imaginative.
0: He he reminds me of writers. He reminds me of artists. Right. Just the playfulness. I I think he's retained the playfulness. And I think as an artist slash writer, you have to be able to play with life and what comes at you and the experiences and to step back and turn turn the bad into something else turn the good into something else and that that takes imagination that takes playfulness and he can he's a master of it if anything he's the real translator because he's taking all of life and reinventing it
1: it's amazing because you create this character and then he is always doing unexpected things which makes him fascinating to follow and we never question it because he does all of these unexpected things and we still say, you know, it's still in character.
0: Well, but he's an actor, so I think I created him and he has this room, right? When he puts, I love when this happened, this was a writing to discover moment, when he puts on a mask at some point and it's a middle-aged woman and he becomes her. So he is a no actor and all no actors wear these wooden masks on stage and that's how they perform. So, unlike the Western view of, oh, he's wearing a mask, we use that as a derogatory term. For him, the mask has been freeing. And he is trying to, in a Tolstoyan way, kind of empathize with everything and everyone around him.
1: Yes. And Moto is an actor of this 14th century classical type of Japanese theater, the no theater. And Hana, well, Hana is in a relationship with a man called David in California, in the Bay Area, in fact. And she goes to Japan, and Moto seems to be in a relationship with a Japanese woman. Their dynamics are very interesting. Do they fall in love? Is that a fair question? Moto do, and ha- Hana? Hana and Moto, do they fall in love?
0: Well, she doesn't want to say goodbye at the end. So I don't know if it's love I you know, she's in her fifties, so I think I'll leave that one to the reader what happens there. But it's
1: something very intense. So I needed to put like Hannah, I needed to put a label on it.
0: That's it. And interestingly, she doesn't need to by the time that they part ways. Yeah,
1: that's her transformation. And you know, I've also listened to you in conferences talk about creating characters and the transformation. I remember hearing you say that you have to have frequent transformations of your character. It could even happen in every paragraph. And I was thinking to myself, how can this really be done? I was fascinated that in your book, you do it all the time. Your characters are constantly having bigger or smaller transformations. Would you say that a writer should do that frequently?
0: Well, I have to say I just finished a huge book, and the transformations happened, but by the end, there was no transformation. Oh, wow. So, I have to rethink this, and how can you, quote, get away with that? Because I think the expectations of the reader is that if they're going to invest 10, 15, 20 hours in a novel, which is about how long it takes, that there should be an arc of change. And yet, I did find, maybe because it upset that expectation, I did find this long novel, it's called A Little Life. Pleasing. I mean, I, I enjoyed that it didn't deliver on that. Wow. So, so but it's rare. It's rare. The little shifts, the little, the little awakenings on the path, it's rare that they don't happen in a book.
1: Now, you take us into different cultures. You introduce the reader to the Japanese culture. How did you personally discover Japanese culture, in Aina?
0: My father did a lot of work in Japan. I think my first trip there was when I was 10 and I grew up in Washington state and Japan was just so different. It was just alarmingly and deliciously different that it made such a huge impression. I think what happened being exposed to such a different culture, the language was different, the alphabet was different the houses were different, paper walls, tatami mats, sleeping on futons, really? Shinto shrines, that I, I just woke up to the fact that everything seems to be an assumption that you can live a life a particular way, but it's because you're choosing to live it that way. That it, it's not a given.
1: Now you speak Japanese, is that correct? A little bit. Have you done translations?
0: I, I've done translations of poetry. With the help of my sensei.
1: Wow. So, let's talk about translation. Personally, I translate Spanish and French and English, which made your book very intriguing because you really understand those nuances and difficulties of translation. Most people, I think they don't realize how much work goes into translation. They think it's just converting words and perhaps rearranging them and maybe some fiddling with grammar. But it is so much more than that. It's it's about the... Well, why don't you tell us why it is so much more than that?
0: Especially, I think, for literature and poetry that there is subtext and nuance that has to be behind the word selection. So if you have no sense of what's going on in the story or don't understand the culture, you're going to make a lot of wrong choices because you are... You are... Um, wheelbarrowing in all your assumptions, your cultural assumptions without full knowledge of what that word, you know, Hana, flower, should should it be flower or cherry blossom, or what is the context, what's the subtext going on in this particular moment? And that's where Hana gets tripped up. I did interview translators for the book. It was eye-opening how subjective of an experience it actually is, and I'll confine it to literature, I think documents it's a different thing but when you're translating literature and poetry it's there's a high degree of subjectivity and experiential information that's coming into the translation and yeah. do you don't you think so you-
1: absolutely what's frightening as you are mentioning, literature, where one of the techniques in literature is what you leave out, Mm. and the wiggling space for the reader, which is what makes it a work of art. But the translator is confronted with what is left out, and he is participating in the guessing game.
0: That's right. And in Japanese, often the subject of a sentence is left out. So there's a passage in the book where Hannah has to figure out who is the actor here, (laughs) who is doing this, so that she has to step into that book in all manner of ways, trying to figure out who is doing what, because the subject of the sentence is gone.
1: Right. When one is able to read and write in different languages, would you think that people become obsessed with style? Do you think that students of different languages become more sensitive to style? Uh,
0: in my experience, yes. Um, in style and fiction, my international students and the students that speak more than one language, style and fiction okay. at USF, um, I find that the bilingual or multilingual students have just more awareness of language, like the positioning, the little positions of a word, and even grammar, the terminology. I don't think grammar's taught anymore in at least looking at what my sons are learning, they don't necessarily know what a subordinate clause is or a modifying phrase or a, a free modifying phrase. It's not even terms used anymore. And yet the bilingual students, they're busy trying to figure out another language. And so there's such precision and trying to master something that they don't understand yet, that that heightened awareness actually ends up in a lot more style. And you look at Navikov, I mean, one of the great stylists, English was his second language. Amazing. <laughs> and, and Conrad, Joseph Conrad, another example of that high, high attention to a, the actual sentence and how it's put together.
1: Yes, because so much nuance can be obtained by putting something at the beginning or in the middle or at the end of a sentence.
0: And don't you find that, that when you've, looked at English after learning you know you speak Spanish yeah, and French right. that there's this heightened awareness of
1: very much so where
0: is the verb in the sentence and why is it there
1: very much so I think that actually you you learn first because you're made conscious of it by your teachers and they're saying yes but when you're using that word there's a different effect on the person receiving it the the person might think you're being excessively formal, or I think you might be a little bit too familial with that. If we look at certain words, I don't think we have to bring up examples, but sometimes it can be too sophisticated, can be scientific, and can be vulgar, it can be familiar, it can be childlike. And when you're learning a new language, you have to pay attention to that. If you only speak one language, maybe you're just used to it. You don't stop to think about it.
0: Right. And in Japanese, there's high attention to other. Who are you speaking to? And that's going to decide what verb you're going to use. Are you speaking to someone that has more power than you? Then you move to honorific. And if it's a woman, you speak a different way. So in the book, there's a very subtle plot line or subtle transformation that as she becomes immersed in speaking Japanese. She starts dreaming in Japanese. Uh, Research has shown that the language that you speak actually affects your thinking. Research done by Lara Boroditsky, she's a cognitive psychologist, and so I did, I read that research, it's like, well, how fascinating, if Hana, the more she speaks Japanese, the more she becomes aware of other, something that, the other person, to be more precise, that... She wasn't aware of before. The English sentence is usually subject verb, right? right? I went, I go, I did. And in Japanese, the verb is at the end, and it's going to change depending on who you're speaking to.
1: That's one of the fundamental things of translating, that you not only have to know the language, you have to know what the culture is, what the collective consciousness or collective mm-hmm. awareness, or perception is. And your book is about perception, isn't it?
0: In part. Perception, um, interpretation. So there's a literal translation plotline that yes. she mistranslates the novel, but there's a metaphorical mistranslation right. in how she's mistranslated her daughter.
1: I'd like to ask you about the relationship between Hannah and Brigitte. This is a story about mothers and daughters. We have Hannah and her relationship to her own mother, which wasn't easy. And then Hannah has a difficult relationship with her own daughter, Brigitte. Tell us a little bit about how you see mother-daughter dynamics, Nina.
0: Well, for the book, and I'll confine it there because that's where I've done the most thinking about it, is that it's, it's fraught with tension, in my mind, because they are of the same gender. So how do you differentiate yourself from mother? How do you not become a mirror of the female in the family dynamic? How do you individuate? So part of the, although Hannah and Brigitte share a lot of the same strengths, Brigitte has the same hearing ability. She can pick up a language really quickly, just acute hearing. I have a son that's like this, that just hears a sound, he can mimic it immediately. Uh, They share a lot of things in common, but Brigitte, it became important to her as as I think about her, I thought about her, how do do you differentiate between self and mother? Uh, That, to me, is the challenge of the mother-daughter dynamic.
1: Let's go into the subject of theme. I have a couple of questions on theme for you, Nina. It seems to me that this book is replete with meaning, or, or rather, interpretations. As I was reading it, I felt I was getting a grasp on the theme, and then, like a slippery fish, it Mm -hmm. escaped my grasp and swam away. And then, when I spotted it again, it was there, the same fish, but a bit different and bigger this time, and then it would slip away again, only to grow even more as I went into your book. I finished this book, and I told a friend about it. The meaning seemed very clear to me when I was explaining it to him. And then I told another friend about it, and the meaning seemed different, and yet it still felt right. And then it dawned on me, life can be interpreted or translated in many different ways, can't it?
0: That's right. Well, I'm so happy you felt that way. (laughs) That means I did my work. Okay. Um, I mean, part of art or what you're trying to create, and you put it out in the world, and it's open to interpretation, and hopefully... If it's rich, if it's if you want to create a rich, dynamic, haunting kind of artwork, that there's more than one question that gets raised. There's more than one you're calling a theme, but more than one point of interest. Otherwise, the discussion and the haunting becomes rather thin. So, yes, interpretation. Con- Hannah is constantly interpreting. She's a translator, and that's literally what she does. But she does it with the entire world, but then it leads to other kinds of machinations of interpretation and also what is, is there meaning? Is there inherent meaning in the world? And she grapples with that and has one answer, Moto has another, and so does Brigitta There's betrayal, there's the mother-daughter relationship, but I really like that you said that the interpretation was kind of slippery because you thought you, you could sum up the, Book and then be done with it. And that's not what you want as a writer. You want you want it to linger. You want it to raise questions and yes. provoke. And I mean it's like a little internal, hopefully, revolution that you have to rethink what you thought right. you knew before.
1: Which is exactly what happens in your book because it keeps you thinking And, you know, your story made me think of Rashomon, the groundbreaking film of the 50s by Japanese film director Akira Mm. Kurosawa, where an event takes place and we get many different accounts. However, that film was interpreted at the time as the story of one same reality perceived differently by different individuals. I personally think that in that film, that was not exactly the case because I think there were several liars talking about the story. However, in your book, you do just that. I believe there is one event that is interpreted in radically different ways by the mother and by her daughter. Would you say that was one of your objectives, that there is one single event and can be seen radically differently
0: yes i think that's right and i think that is for me it became a requirement of the story to give kind of a specific moment where things broke apart not just a cumulative i think you get more energy if you have a specific event versus oh over time it just the relationship frayed and frazzled and that was the end of the relationship so, I do think there is a, a beating heart of the main conflict between those two, and they see it very differently. And Hannah, who is so well-defended, um, needs someone like Moto to come along, like I said, prickly, to help her see it a different way.
1: Yes. So, there is a juxtaposition of different perspectives or interpretations or, or translations of life or this event that is in your book. Is there is somebody right or wrong finally? Is Hannah right? Is Brigitte right?
0: Boy, that's a hard question. Um, again I I think that is open for interpretation, that how would you have handled it? It's hard to know. As a as a reader, when you go through something difficult with a character, you know, if you're identified with the character and you've and the writer has done their work, then you've put the reader in the same spot as your main character and they right. have to grapple with Well, what would you do? And it's, you don't know.
1: Actually, that's what happened to me, or you did that to me, because I was on Hannah's side. I (laughs) felt that Hannah was being harsh on herself. And I also felt that I was being nudged to judge Hannah harshly. And yet I felt a resistance to do so. In your book, Nina, is the author harsh on Hannah?
0: I think in the beginning, Hannah is not harsh on herself. She thinks she's fine. She handled the situation and the relationship with their daughter just perfectly, and it's done. It's in the past, and there's no need to look back. She's moving on. And then, given the turmoil and the upheaval of her life, she has to rethink relationships and meaning, what creates meaning in her life. And that opens up a time to reevaluate and to grow and to think again how she could have handled the situation with her daughter and the handling of her life, I guess.
1: There is a fundamental question. She is confronted with, was my translation wrong of this novel, of this book? I was on her side. Do you think that her first translation was fundamentally wrong?
0: I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes her reevaluate everything as well, that she realizes how much she interjected her own life story to protect this fictional character jiro mm-hmm. because she'd fallen in love with him so his actions he sends his wife his depressed wife away um they're a japanese couple and she suffers from depression and ends up sending her away and for hana that was the right thing to do she too sends her daughter away and in her mind that was the right thing to do and but she comes to learn that there's other ways of viewing it and other ways of living in the world and There is a role for grief. I mean, there's so much from her history of the pressure to just move on and let things go. And the grief from loss should be just uh, shunted aside after a while. And there's an energy to keep moving and to keep going.
1: And your protagonist, the translator, and the difficulties of translating and interpretation. You're a writer, Nina Schuyler, that is obsessed with language and with words. And yet, in your book, you mention that words are inadequate to express emotions or that some things are not accessible with words. Are words inadequate, Nina?
0: Well, it's what we have. (laughs) Right. So, it's what we have. I came to writing late. I've always been a reader, and I've always loved reading, and I, what I love to read is style and what a sentence can possibly do. Uh, the verbal energy, the rhythms and the sounds and the tension in a sentence through delay or uh, un- the unexpected or different registers of sounds, that made me a reader. And then, as a writer, that's what I wanted to learn how to do. And this is, I always tell my students, this is endless, what you can learn to do. (laughs) And the study of sentences is endless as well. But I think, I think part of the task of the writer is to simulate the world, the world before the habituated mind steps in and says it knows it all. It's already seen a tree. It's a tree. Just label it and move on. But the writer has to see again and again and try to capture that moment, you know, when you wake up or that, that moment when the habituated mind is quiet for a moment and everything is dazzling and and you're overwhelmed by the astonishment of existence. And that I mean, what we have is language and it's how can you do that at the sentence by sentence level is what I'm trying to do in my work.
1: Many subjects are explored in this book. As we can see, there's trust, what we believe in, did we make the right choices, does life have meaning or not? It's actually a, would you say this is a book of philosophy, Nina?
0: I think that's, I mean, there's a lot of ways. I think that it can be entertaining and you can read it at that level. And, you know, there's certainly just the very basic reader question, what happens next? And I, I am one that enjoys plot. I want to be able to ask that question. So there's that level. But there's, I've been fascinated, and I've always been fascinated by, you no know, existentialism. I've done a lot of reading of Camus, who actually makes it into the book. Right. Is there inherent meaning in life, or is it something that needs to be manufactured and created? Right. Hannah is of the school that it must be manufactured. That there's nothing in life that's inherently meaningful. And that is just her view. And I think personally, I go back and forth. It depends on the news. <laughs> right. Often, if I feel that there's actually something inherently meaningful in all this, or is it our task to sit down and make it? Right. And that that isn't necessarily a despairing thing to me.
1: Yes. Yes, you also go there in your book. Sometimes it's like... Sometimes we need to get off. We have to. It's like, can you stop the world? I want to get off now. Or I want to get off the stage. You also ask questions like, what is home? Where is home? Uh, Is life being misread? Actually, you do mention something very interesting. Does one need to die to keep on living? Now, all of these are philosophical questions, but it's if you're willing to pay attention, because actually there's this very intense plot line. But is this. A book about regret,
0: Nina. I know. I do think, I mean, part of the struggle of the book, I wanted to create a female character that wasn't a victim. That was really important to me because the women, a lot of the women I know and have met are strong and masters or experts at things and intelligent, and they don't walk around in misery or feeling like a victim and hannah certainly doesn't feel that way so that was really important to me but but um how do you gain entry to someone that isn't vulnerable so she is vulnerable in that she does have regret and i think that was one of the big ways that i helped the reader gain access to a more unconventional female character that isn't no bereft because of a lost love affair or going through a divorce or, I mean, it's not these typical situations. And that, that was really important to me to have a different kind of female on the page.
1: Right. We're going to go into the section of craft. How did you develop as a writer, Nina?
0: Like I said, I started late. And I think my first real entry was being an avid reader all my life. But the second big shift for me was becoming a journalist and I wrote for newspapers and covered politics and law and anything I could come up with to write about. And what I walked away with from that was one, to learn to write fast and face a blank page and to continually step outside myself, uh, listening to the world, gathering story, and also the idea of economy and compression when you write for a newspaper. There's a lot of pressure to condense get rid of the superfluous. So I think that I, that became part of my, if you, if I have a writing style, that was part of it. I'm not a maximalist. You know, I don't go on and on to describe something. The variances of voice matter to me. I think that also comes from journalism. That was the beginning. And then I started to take classes at night through the Berkeley Extension Program and Play with fiction because there was so much in the newspaper articles that didn't make that article. They were cut or on the floor. Like, what do I do with this character that that seems bigger than life that I just met? You know, I just interviewed the mayor. What do I do with this stuff? So, making fiction from nonfiction became the first foray into writing just fiction i don't have an interesting enough life to write memoir i never will (laughs) and nonfiction, it just feels a lot like you know writing for a newspaper and a little bit of a straitjacket for me right and with fiction i could play and invent and create drama i have a pretty quiet life except for two boys (laughs) so okay so for fiction it was a way that i could invent
1: I know that you've studied poetry, and you have wonderful images in your book. You have bridges and trees and and children, an ox pulling a cart, and... The windows, I loved the windows, Mm. especially the effects of rain on the windows. Tell us a little bit about using images in your writing. Mm,
0: Thank you. I think that is from poetry and thinking about it and reading a lot of poetry that are very imagistic. Just like a character can have an arc, I think images can have an arc. So, there are bridges throughout this book. A translation is… The actual translation of translation is to cross over. And when I learned that, it's like, well, how do we cross over? It's usually through a bridge. So you'll find in the opening chapter, there's an image of the Golden Gate Bridge, and she decides there's no need to cross that bridge. She's already done it enough. And by the end, the bridge has transformed. So I knew that bridges would be throughout, and it was a way to help the reader get a sense of what the heart of the story was about, Uh, using the imagery to provide subtext and the unstated, so rather than hammering the reader's head with, this is the meaning of the book, and I want you to get this. it's Bring in all the associative material via image into the book. And so you talked about the different dimensions, or that there's other things that you can find in here. And I'm always urging my students to think about images and how they can bring so much richness in, more depth to the page, and yet be so economical as well.
1: There's a stylistic choice that I found very intriguing. In the beginning, you have a close third. She, Hannah is looking at out the window, and she sees a tree, and why does she feel this way? But towards the end of the book, you change it to the first person, and it's she's looking out the window, and she says, why do I feel this way? Mm. How did you pull that off? Why did you do that?
0: Hmm. Well, by the end, she has become much more connected with self, herself, and much more um, a lot of that defense, a lot of that rigidity has fallen away, and she's willing to feel pain and grief, whereas before she wasn't. She was so uh, um, like armored. So She's opened up. She's opened up, and it felt like, oh, that's a way to really pull the reader in tight to that interior space where she is now in much more contact and in communion with. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you think it (laughs) worked. You never know.
1: (laughs) Now, this is such a rich book. What did you struggle with when you were writing it? What challenged you as a writer?
0: Well, I mentioned the female character. at The early drafts, a lot of my readers felt that she was off-putting. So I had to find, I had to think about how is she vulnerable? If you have a well-defended character that seems, that wants to prove she's right, how do you then allow entry for the reader into her flaws? Early on, too, you know that something, something flawed is there because she hasn't spoken to her daughter for six years. So that was um, a struggle in several drafts to figure out how to get her on the page in the way I wanted to.
1: What are you working on right now?
0: Uh, I'm working on a new novel. My agent has a novel, so that's done, and I've moved on. I'm revising another novel. Can you
1: tell us a little bit what it's about?
0: The one my agent has, um, a strained relationship between a father and son and the coming together of those two men by the end of the book. There's a big um, historical cement wall between them, and over the course of the book, that cement wall gets dismantled.
1: Mm, I love that. So, our readers want to read more of you. Do you have a website?
0: Um, it's my name, skyler.com.
1: So, that's n-i-n-a-s-c-h-u-y-l-e-r.com. We're running out of time. We would love to spend more time, but, you know, this is what it is. And we're going to wrap up our show today with another reading of this wonderfully rich book, The Translator. By Nina Schuyler. I have asked her to read an excerpt of chapter nine.
0: So, this is when she first meets Moto, the unemployed actor who was the inspiration for the book she translated. She looks at the window to steady herself. Water from last night's rain is pooled in the leaves. In the backyard, a large twisted apple tree reaches its spindly leafless branches in every direction. Large lumps line its trunk as if something lives inside it and is trying to punch its way out. It probably hasn't been sprayed for bugs or pruned. Each year, the old tree must meet spring with a flourish of flowers, only to have the birds in a frenzy of bugs devour its fruit what a waste. A chill jerks her shoulders. The house is cold and the sole source of warmth is where Moto is sitting, the heater beneath the table. When she turns, she's startled to find Moto standing in the kitchen. She didn't even hear him cross the cold floorboards. He's a handsome man, compact, not an ounce of extra fat. When he walks to the sink, he moves without bobbing his head, as if he's wafting on a breeze. She tries again. Your brother, Renzo, invited me. He fills a glass of water from the faucet. She watches his Adam's apple dance as he drinks until the glass is empty. A water droplet glimmers on his cheek. She can see his birthmark more clearly now. It's changed to a softer red, or is it the lighting? She can't tell. Stretching from the outside corner of his right eye down to the tip of his nose, it distracts from his deep-set eyes, unusual for a Japanese face, a face that is unreadable, an expressionless mask, like the no-masks he wears on stage, or used to wear. "'Hello,' he says. His first clearly articulated word, and it's almost civil— But it's not just the word her attention veers to, it's the sound, a deep timbre emanating not from his chest but lower, his belly. And from one sound, a whole series of sounds runs through her, as if he's not just one man but many. Shouts of anger and joy, cries of ecstasy, moans and laughter. How did he do that? It's a lovely house, she stammers, post and beam with paper walls that move, a constantly changing house. Why doesn't she stop rambling? You can have a wall or not. He wipes his lips. You're a no-actor. Was. Yes, I heard. I'm sorry. It must be difficult. He looks at her. Shigata kanai, he says. It can't be helped. It's a fairly common Japanese expression. When she was shopping in Tokyo for her granddaughters, Hana heard a woman in the checkout line utter this phrase as she relented and bought her crying child a bag of candy. The woman said it whimsically. A meaningless bit of verbiage. Moto's tone, on the other hand, held more gravity. It reminds her how Jiro must have sounded after he called the doctor and turned over the care for his wife. An acceptance of a bad situation and the need to move on. It's this attitude that she found so appealing and admirable about Jiro. Faced with the demise of his marriage, he exuded from his constitution a steady fortitude and resilience to march onward. In her opinion, his response was not heartless at all. In fact. She'd argue that it's one of the more admirable traits a human can have. Not selfishly mired in a haze of self-absorption or pity, a person with this quality is responsible, full of integrity, available to others, to carry on. It's a courageous act to move on from an unexpected, unfortunate event. And look at Moto. Except for his hair, Moto hasn't let himself go. He's a physically fit man, and he holds down a job... Though it may not be the kind of work that Renzo approves of, at least he's carrying on. Bravo. Bravo for him. You seem to have the right attitude about all this, she says, not bothering to conceal her praise. Then he is right beside her, his long fingers approaching her face, his breathing near her ear, steady, loud, low. And now he's so close she sees the filigree of intricate red veins that make up his birthmark. She freezes. What is he doing? From her shoulder, he plucks a single strand of her newly blackened hair and holds it in front of him as if it's the most enchanting thing he's ever seen. He twists it this way and that before he lets it go. They watch it slowly fall, and it keeps falling. It's taking forever to fall, as if he's thrown it into a world where time operates differently, if at all. Her strand of hair is still falling through space when the front door opens. The loud creak of the door hinges, breaks the spell... Then Renzo's chipper voice, her first thought why did he have to come back? The black hair lies on the wood floor, a scribbled pencil mark on an otherwise pristine canvas.
1: Wow, lovely, lovely. Thank you so much, Nina. Nina thank Schuyler, you. thank you for coming to our show.
0: Thank you, Rafael. Just great questions. For it no.
1: was thank great. You. Thank you so much. So that's it for today. I'm Rafael Herrero and Rafael Herrero, if you can roll your R's. You've been listening to Switchback, the podcast of the MFA program in creative writing, or simply writing, here at the University of San Francisco. Join us next week on Thursday at 5.30 p.m., we're recorded live at KUSF Studios. Find us online at KUSF.org. You can also find our podcast on Switchback Literary Magazine's website. That's wwswitchback Our intro music is by Larks. If you want to contact me, please do so at Rafael Herrero R-A-F-A-E-L. H-E-R-R-E-R-O dot S-F like in San Francisco at gmail.com Thanks for listening and join us next week at 5.30pm next Thursday where we'll be talking about anything right early. Bye!
0: Is anyone there? Please. Oh. Hey.
1: You're listening to KUSF.org You're listening to KUSF, live from the University of San Francisco. Visit us on the web at KUSF.org. The Secret Diaries of a Gay Gynecologist in Paris. A memoir in podcast format, coming this fall, September 27th. Every Tuesday, the story of a gay gynecologist who abandons everything and moves to Paris in the search of love and happiness. And, well, things don't go as expected. Read by the author, Dr. Rafael Herrero, MD, PhD. The secret diaries of a gay gynecologist in Paris may contain adult language. And vive Paris! coming this September, September 27th. The Secret Diaries of a Gay Gynecologist in Paris. A memoir in podcast format. A comedy. A tragedy. A tragic comedy. September 27th. Weekly episodes every Tuesday of The Secret Diaries of a Gay Gynecologist in Paris. The story of a gay gynecologist who abandons everything and moves to Paris in the search of love and happiness, and, well, things don't go as expected. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll cringe, you'll say, Oui. With this weekly podcast, you'll be following the gay gynecologist in love and work in Paris, but within the comfort of your own home. You'll also be finding out what real Parisians are like, are they those romantic scented seducers everyone talks about? Are the Parisians, les Parisiennes, really those sexy fashion conscious vamps you've seen leaning against a lamppost on a cobbled stone street in Montmartre? What is it like to live and love in Paris like a Parisian? We're talking the real deal, not living like an expat, but as a regular Frenchman. If you love speaking French but can't move to Paris right now, this is the podcast for you. If you want to see what happens behind closed doors in hospitals, this is the show for you. Listen, between you and me, what really goes on in a gynecologist's office? What if that office is French? And how are French babies born? And then again, come on, haven't you ever wondered what really goes on in a doctor's mind? What about a gynecologist's? And what if he's gay? All of this and more in this weekly podcast, a patio book, a memoir, a memoir in podcast format, a comedy, a tragedy, a tragic comedy starting September 27th. Every Tuesday, a 15 to 20 minute episode of The Secret Diaries of a Gay Gynecologist in Paris. Read by the author, Dr. Rafael Herrero, MD, PhD, a doctor who's delivered thousands of babies and treated thousands of women in the City of Light. Voilà, mes amis, yes, my friends, rien que pour vous. All of this and more, once a week, all for you and free. In the meantime, visit my Facebook page, type in Gay Gynecologist in Paris, or follow me on Twitter at Gay Gyno Paris with no spaces and share with me all your thoughts. And don't forget to check out my pilot episode. Je vous aime. Venez me voir. A très bientôt. This fall, starting September 27th, every Tuesday, an episode of... The Secret Diaries of a Gay Gynecologist in Paris. Caution, may contain adult language. Ne l'oublions pas, mes amis, my friends, je vous aime, venez me voir, à très bientôt, and vive Paris!